0: Another day, another dollar makes you wonder where your You can scream. Hi, folks, this is Jack Spearco with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things we can all do to live a better life. When times get tough or even if they don't dictate it is almost always the case during my 50-mile commute today through rain and nastiness and 65-degree uh, temperatures and gray skies. And uh, today is episode 296 of the Survival Podcast. Uh, it is October 13th, 2009, and we're going to do another listener question show. We're going to do that for a variety of reasons. One, because I've built a huge backlog I need to start working off. And two, because these shows are actually a little bit easier on me to do. And as you can hear, my voice is beginning to fail from some type of crud illness. Uh, that I've been, I have fought it yesterday. You probably could hear it yesterday. And uh it today Thought I had a fever yesterday But didn't really worry about it Just worked through everything And uh, thought maybe I'm getting the dreaded swine flu But um, I don't think that's what it is Because I feel too, too decent overall for it to be the flu Unless I have a very mild case of it in any event I'm not sure, I'm not running a fever I'm off to work And uh, my voice might be weakened But I'll do what I can for you today I don't like to ever leave you without a show so one of you guys sent me some uh, echinacea spray last year. That really helps a lot, and I was going to grab it out of my little bin of herbals that I keep in uh, my counter, and just forgot to. So, uh, crappy voice and all, here I am. I'll do what I can for you. And with that, let's knock out the housekeeping. Number one, make sure you're supporting our sponsors. Uh, again, sponsors on this show—they are personal endorsements for me. They are not just people to show up with money. They have to go before the listener ad council, which are the moderators on the forum, for an evaluation period. And if they turn them down, I. Have have to turn them down. I don't know if there's anybody else in the world that puts advertisers through something like that just to uh, allow them to spend money and sponsor a show. Uh, if so, I'd like to know who else is doing it, but uh, anyway, that is your assurance that you're dealing with good people. Sponsor of the day number one today, Sawtooth Tactical. Really cool stuff. Really cool tactical gear. Check out their site. I'm telling you, you'll find some really cool stuff there and uh, absolutely dedicated to customer service. Uh, other sponsor of the day, SafeCast Royal. Uh, really good prepping stuff. Anything you possibly need to stock up the pantry with from Mountain House and Yoder's to all kinds of other cool things. Check out Safe Castle. They have a discount buyer's club worth 29. that costs $29 for a lifetime membership. I'll tell you how you can get that for free here in just a minute. Uh, next one. Uh, make sure you're joining our forum. Get involved with our forum. I'll leave it at that today. Last but not least, make sure you're getting involved with their make sure you're getting, if you think this show is worth more than 20 cents an episode. Consider getting involved with the Member Support Brigade. That's where you financially support the show with a contribution of $50 a year or $5 a month. Uh, you'll get over $80 worth of free retail value on day one. Now it's the publications from James Talmadge Stevens, uh, a bunch of little videos that I did, but one 30-minute video that's going to be selling soon for $9.99. I'm giving you that free uh, if you uh, if you join the Members Brigade and that Safe Castle Royal Discount Membership. You You get that for free, a free lifetime discount membership um, by being a member support brigade member. All details are in the back office of that. That wraps up the typical housekeeping, but there's two things I wanted to talk to you about before we get into the show today um, that are kind of cool. Number one, I want to remind you, I had Ron Hood on last week. It was a Friday show last week. Great show if you haven't listened to it. Go listen to it. Um, it was like uh, prepping slash comedy. I think we had each other laughing. I think we've had everybody who uh, listened to it laughing. Uh, but we learned a lot, too, from each other, and I think we helped you guys learn a lot, too. So check that show out. But the big thing is Ron has a tremendous collection of DVDs and videos. And I'm telling you guys, I don't get any kind of kickback or anything on this. He's just given TSP listeners a. discount for two weeks Uh, So that's until next Friday And uh, you can Go to the the site and get the Discount code, which is basically my name Jack Spierko, and that will get you 10% off of anything in Rob's web store Ron's web store, so please Consider uh, maybe purchasing some of His DVDs, it was really nice For him to come on the show, he certainly doesn't need Really the exposure that I'm able To give to him, this guy is the icon Of the survival industry Uh, So if you, you want to learn from the best check out some of his videos like he's got stuff for everybody next uh, you guys rock and a few of you got together on the forum and nominated me for the 2009 podcast awards under people's choice and one other category and And uh, the nomination is not official yet. It takes a lot of nominations to make the top ten, and then it goes to voting. So if you guys want to help me uh, get nominated for the 2009 awards, you go fill out a form, confirm an email, and that's what it takes to do. Full instructions are on the forum. I'll put a link in today's show notes. But um, it'd be an honor to win, but I'd love to just be nominated. So if you guys can help me with that, get motivated, get out there, fill out one simple form for me. And, again, there will be a link in today's show notes. The sister will put full instructions of where to go and what to do when you get there. And with that, let's get on to taking our first question today. This was a really cool question, and when I, I had to go find the answer to it. And when I found the answer, I decided I needed right away to do um, a listener show today uh, when I was making my decision this morning because of all this health care nonsense that's going on out there, and supposedly there's no alternatives. And this was a question about whether the person took, a government handout or not And this person was pretty upset about it If she did Said I would have rather paid full price Than take money from the, gov- from the government For this stuff And um, can you tell me about it Well here's her story They went to, uh, to the doctor And her husband had a problem That I won't go into But he needed a medication the medication came out to like 90 bucks or something like that. And um, she said, wow, you know, that's higher than I expected. And then the girl behind the counter realized, well, she's paying cash. She doesn't have insurance. And um, she says, well, wait a minute if you're paying cash. She goes back to the register, and she comes back, and the, the, it was like 30 bucks off or something. It was not like $60. And uh, she said, well, why? What is it? She goes, oh, it's UNA. And, um, you know, she's kind of like, was it, oh, my guess maybe a little bit embarrassed that she didn't know what that meant, and just let her do it without asking for explanation and left, and then started kicking herself and said, hey, did I take some kind of government handout? You absolutely did not. You found one of the coolest things in the world for people without insurance or people who have exhausted prescription benefits. Now, everybody knows you can go to Walmart and get those $4 prescriptions, but only the ones that are on their $4 list. Obviously, a $90 prescriptions not on their list for um, 4 bucks. So what is you? It's the United Networks of America. It is a 100% free discount card with no catch. I mean, this is like, yeah, you go to Tom Thumb and you get a Tom Thumb card and they give you an additional discount. Or Kroger and you get a Kroger card and they give you a discount. That's what this is, except you don't get it from the store. You get it from the network and you can get it online for free and basically just print it out. And I'll put a link in today's show notes. But what does it do? It gives you a discount of 32 to 35% on average on most prescription drugs long as you're paying cash for them. And some drugs a discount of up to 75%. So I know a lot of folks out there either don't have insurance or they have insurance but they don't have prescription benefits or they exhaust their prescription benefits. And I checked into this thing, folks. There's no catch here. There is a zero cost. You don't go in any kind of secret government database or anything like that. It's been on major network television. Uh, Again, I'll give you a link to the website. But even if you don't think you need this thing, go get one. Throw it in your wallet or your purse, if you're a lady, and have it with you. You never know when you're going to get into a situation where you're supposed to get a prescription and your, your company says, oh, we're not approving that prescription. Substitute it with this one or something. This will give you another option. It's taken out a tremendous number of pharmacies. There's a whole graphic there with them. So this thing is cool. So how did you get one without a card? My instinct is that this little lady that works at a pharmacy um, believes in customer service above and beyond, probably has one of her own, and when people come in and pay cash and she realizes it, she plugs it in for them so they get the discount with her card, since so it's no skin off her back and there's no limits or anything like that. So, that's what it is, really kick-ass find, great job, I know that your little fine there, and allowing me to tell 9,000 people that this day is going to, uh, to help someone, so kudos to you for even though you thought you did something you didn't want to do, asking about it, looking into it, finding out the truth and helping other people, absolutely freaking awesome. In fact, I'd say Hero of the Day to you who sent that in to me. All right, so, uh, and no, folks, I'm not kidding when I say Hero of the Day. There's people that are going to have medication. Because they're going to be able to afford it because of that. And uh, we didn't need a government handout for it or rationing of our health insurance or anything else like that to make it happen. So, Senate's voting today. If you're opposed to this pile of crap, and uh, I'll tell you right now, I'm put a little politics in today because i got to say this because they're voting today. Call your senator and tell him you know what they're doing. And here's what they're doing. They took the public option out of the bill. They're voting for cloture today, which means they need at least 60 votes to move the bill forward. And they have a plan to stick the public option back into the bill at the end. Tell them you know that that's what they're doing. You're watching them, and they better not think about it, unless you want the damn thing. I'm not going to tell you how to think. But if you're opposed to this, today's the day to let your voice be heard. And here's one example of how the evil private sector is able to help you for filling out a form on the web. All right, let's go on to the next question question. Guy says to me, um, Jack, you had John McCann on And uh, one of the skills that he said you would really should brush up on and learn was uh, knot tying, basic knot tying. And you agreed, um, but you guys didn't talk about what knots to learn. Uh, What knots do you think are essential for us to practice, learn, and make part of our skills? Okay, well, probably the only reason I haven't really talked about this much online is I I think a podcast on how to tie knots would be um, almost unusable and um, frankly pretty boring because it's really hard to explain take the trailing end and wrap it twice or you know what I mean but uh, it's a good question and it's something I probably should have brought to your attention sooner so I have 8 knots that I see as like a foundational uh, knowledge and if you have these 8 knots that you're capable of doing uh, you can pretty much handle any situation and here's what they are they are the figure 8 the tape knot The clove hitch, the half hitch, the bowline, and the timber hitch. Those are six cores. Again, I'll give them to you again. The figure eight tape knot, timber hitch, clove hitch, half hitch, um, bow line. If you can tie those, you can do an awful lot. I don't care if it's marine uh, activities. I don't care if it's wilderness activities. I don't care if it's rappelling. Um, that is a good, solid skill set. Now, I add to those two knots that are generally considered fisherman's knots for tying fishing line or splicing fishing line to hooks, leaders, other lines, things like that and uh, but i 'll tell you what if you learn how to do them with rope they 're very useful using rope or cordage in addition to uh, using them for fishing and everybody should know a couple good fishing knots. The first one is 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 a little bit complicated to learn it 's called the blood knot and uh, with rope, it's not really a good knot, but with cordage, smaller, more flexible cordage, it's really a great knot for splicing two pieces of cord together, and it's a great knot for splicing fishing line together. And you can splice fishing line together with a blood knot, trim off your little trailing edges, and reel it right onto a reel and cast it. That's how great this knot is. Um, So again, I'm not going to explain how to tie it, but you can look it up. It's called a blood knot. Like, cut yourself and you bleed blood knot. really should learn that. The the last knot is called the palmer knot. And and um this knot is absolutely the easiest knot and one of the strongest knots you can tie with tying hooks and lures and anything onto a fishing line. And I can't explain this one because it's so dadgone simple. You take the end of the line and you make a loop. You squeeze the loop to a point, you shove it through the hole, you tie an overhand knot, and you pull the hook through the trailing hole and pull it down tight. Look it up online, it'll make sense. But but as long as I just said to uh, to do it is about as long as it takes to tie a hook on or something like that. So, palm or not and and uh, blood knot. One more I would add, thinking about it now, to the fishing knots is what's called a dropper loop, which is uh, actually similar similar to a blood knot. When you learn to tie the blood knot, um, you'll understand when you learn to tie the dropper loop what I mean by similar. But this allows you to tie a knot with a, a loop that will stick straight out from a running line. So for tying on like additional leaders, uh, or like a lot of times when I fish for uh, sand bass and high, we do a spoon a slab on the bottom and a little jig about 18 inches up it's perfect for that um, it also has a lot of uses with cordage and rope so I would add dropper loop to that. You learn those nine. You'll be able to handle most situations. And then there's, you know, your basic squares and overhands. But I think most people learn those pretty simply. These are the knots I think you need to add to your wilderness skill set. Um, Here's another great question a guy asked me. He says he's about to buy his first shotgun. Never owned a shotgun in his life. Older gentleman, I think late 40s. I don't remember exactly. If I get that wrong, don't be offended. Um, But one of his issues, he has some back issues. So he's concerned about recoil. So his first question is uh, 12-gauge or 20-gauge. Uh, he's planning on doing basically some skeet shooting and using this as a home defense weapon. So it's not going to be up and down over miles and miles of uh, fields hunting unless the bug catches you. And if you go once or twice, it just might It might be worth doing. Um, but So the first question, 12 or 20. Second question is, do I go with uh, the Bernelli, the new Bernelli, I can't remember the model, the Vinci, that's what it's called, the Bernelli Vinci uh, or the Remington 86. Well... I'm going to tell you, I would, and he said, you know, 12-gauge shells are widely available. 20-gauge shells are just as available as 12-gauge shells. At home defense distances with buckshot or slugs, a 20-gauge is damn deadly and it'll do everything you need in a home defense situation. So I would lean toward the 20. That pushes us to the Remington 870. And I would go, since the guy said he's not going to be real tight with money, it's going to be an investment, don't buy the Express, buy the one called the Wingmaster which is the nice, pretty-looking wood, and uh, there's a beautiful little gun. It really is. Um, I would go with a 20-gauge in this situation, which, again, you know, we're pushing toward the 870 here because the Vinci is not available in 20-gauge. It's 12-gauge only. Let's talk about that gun for a second, though, because it's a great gun, and I wouldn't be opposed to you buying it. It weighs about 6.8, 6.9 pounds empty, um, so you add... Three 12-gauge shells You add that weight to them Depending on what they're loaded You add maybe another quarter pound uh, Just by loading it so I'm thinking about the back here. The recoil with that shotgun, though, is going to be insignificant. Every bit as insignificant as a 20-gauge pump. Uh, that gun is beautiful. There is nothing wrong with that gun. It's expensive. It's worth it. It's probably three times what a, what a nice 870 Wingmaster costs. cost. It is worth the money, um, and it is a finely made piece of equipment. But if you're worried about your back, um, and you didn't say how bad your back is, but my instinct, is what's going to be more antagonizing to your back is going to be if you're going to start shooting sporting clays or what have you and you load up with two boxes of shells and the gun and you're walking a sporting clay course uh, with that weight distribution through a vest, that may become more agonizing on your back long term uh, than the recoil itself. Especially if you take some lessons and learn to handle recoil and the Remington 870 that I recommend my son had one when he was 12 smallest stature kid, handle the recoil no problem whatsoever. So I know the recoil is not going to be a problem with that gun. So I'd go with the Wingmaster in your situation. Um, if you get the Remington 870 Wingmaster um, with a 26-inch barrel, which is what I'll recommend for you for this dual-purpose role in a home defense situation, the shorter barrel is an advantage, and it weighs less, and, folks, two inches on your shotgun barrel doesn't buy you any velocity or knockdown power at all once you're out over about a 20-inch barrel. Uh, it's all about chokes and loading at that point. Point. So you're not going to hit harder. You're not going to damage anything anymore. Um, you're not going to have any differential in pattern. The longer barrel simply gives you a longer sighting plane, and that makes hits easier for some people. But if you learn to shoot a 26-inch barrel well, you won't have any problems. All my shotguns, my pump shotguns, have 26-inch or shorter barrels on them because when you're going through woods and things like that, um, it's easier to get through tangles and what have you. Or if you're using it in a home defense situation, and you don't have all your, you know, your tactical slicked up, collapse stock, all that stuff, the shorter gun is a lot more applicable to that situation. So for that dual role, I would recommend the 870, 20-gauge, 20 26-inch barrel. Since you want a nice gun, something you're going to see as an investment in hand hand down, leave the $250 uh, Express matte finish behind. Go with the Wingmaster. It's a beautiful gun. You'll leave it to somebody. Uh, they'll appreciate it. They'll cherish it. So that's my answer there. And we'll come back to shotguns in a little bit. Next guy asks a very interesting question. Um, He wants to consider doing a private mortgage with his grandmother. His grandmother has an old farmhouse, and uh, I guess he's staying there, living there, taking care of it, or would move into it, and she's moving out. I don't really know the situation, but one way or another, he would feel better buying the property. Now, what he's suggesting is that instead of going through a mortgage broker or a bank, that they do a private mortgage. My first question he answered for me, and that was, does the property owner own the property outright? Right? Because if the property owner doesn't own the property, you can't do it because somebody else actually holds the deed and owns a lien against the property. So you can only do a private mortgage if the property is paid in full by the property owner. You got a fair market value assessment of what it's gonna take and uh, and and that so he's good to go with that. So he's looking to do this fair and square. I'm not trying to you know slight anybody or anything. You just he'd rather pay the payments and in interest to his grandmother than to the bank. Here's a couple things to consider. Your grandmother can either have basically an annuity, which is your mortgage payment, from now until she dies. And she's an older lady. She's not going to be around forever. If you do it based on a 30-year term, um, she is not going to be here to collect all the money. All right. So that's one way. If you go to the bank and assuming you can get a conventional bank loan, she gets a lump sum payment. So, yeah, they get the interest, but she gets more money. So that's a conversation to have with everybody that's involved, including your father, who's another party that's involved here. So that's what you have to consider there. The other thing that he said, this is what sets off the, you know, you got to sit down and have a common Jesus meeting with the whole family about this, is that when she dies, the property will probably be inherited by his father, And then eventually left to him. Okay, this means that if you do this private mortgage with your grandmother... When she deceases and the, the if her will indeed does leave the property to your father, you will then continue to make those mortgage payments just like you're making them to a bank. The only thing is your father will become the receiver of those payments and be the lien holder against your loan. So you're in a mortgage for as long as it takes to pay you off with a private mortgage. It's not a shortcut, but you're paying your grandmother and then eventually your father. If they're okay with this and if they like the idea, Idea. I don't have a problem with it. I would say to you, though, you now are on the hook to pay your payment more, not less, than a bank. You can't phone them up and ask for a couple extra days or something. You have to look at that bill the way that any other bill would be looked at. Because if you don't do that, you could damage family relationships and you don't want to do that. And I've seen loans between relatives tear each other apart. Now, what's mitigating this is there's no transfer of funds. Okay, so it's not like your grandmother's giving you a quarter million dollars in cash that you're paying back and then your dad's inheriting that and there was money somewhere. The house has been paid for a long time. It's an old farmhouse. This keeps it in the family. This seems to make sense. Now, here's the real reason I would suggest as long as everybody's agreeable, you do this deal. Let's say you get in a bad way and you say, Dad, I can't pay the mortgage anymore and I don't want to put you out but I can't pay anymore. Foreclose on me. Go ahead, do it. And you don't say that arrogantly, you say that sincerely. If your father forecloses on you, he assumes the tax responsibilities of the property. Okay? House stays in the family, and eventually maybe you straighten things out and you can come back to him and renew the mortgage where it left off. If he's willing to do that. Or you say, look, Dad, how about this? You take the property back, but I'll make the tax payments. You have all these different options there. Or we can rent the property. There's so many things that you can do to keep the property in the family, if that's important to you, with this scenario you've come up with. You just really have to be careful. You said you didn't want to involve a lawyer any more than you have to, but this has got to be in writing. Everybody has to be clear on what's being agreed to. Any objections need to be taken of. of before signing not after every scenario needs to be figured out and what will happen if everybody needs to shake hands look each other in the eye if you can do that you can make this work and you'll safeguard the property for the family and I really like that idea in many situations I'd say just go to the bank and get a mortgage in your situation with a house that's been in the family this long this makes a lot of sense see if you can do it but please involve an attorney at least to put the final document together It will be the best money you ever spent, and please have everybody look each other in the eye and fully understand what you're doing before you do it, and be willing to walk away if they get upset about it. If you're willing to do that, come into this with a servant heart, try to help everybody. I think it will work out for the best. Great question, great scenario, and this is another thing that if you're out there, there's probably people today that this is giving an option to that they didn't have before. So that's why I thought it was a great question. Here's another really cool question. Guy says, you've talked about surplus firearms before, mill surplus. So like um, old U.S. Army surplus, old uh, Yugoslavian Army, SKSs, older AKs. A lot of stuff came out of Egypt, South America, tons of Mausers out there. How do I find out what's currently being surplused? This is a good question for a variety of reasons. Number one, I would tell you if you want to get your hands on surplus guns, especially the things that are Still dirt cheap, like the Mosin, Nagants um, and some of the Mausers and things like that. Buy them now. Buy them right now. Uh, put this in perspective. A good Swedish Mauser in uh, 6.5 will cost you over $300 now. Just a decent shape, armor refurbished, not collector's grade. Three hundred bucks. When they hit the surplus scene back in the 80s, you could get three of them for like 80 bucks. And people thought they were junk until they started some, putting some rounds through them and saw what that amazing little round could do both to game and at the target range. And then it became a highly prized weapon. Why I say to do it now is the question itself it is a cause for concern if you're a collector of surplus arms. A lot of the stuff to be surplus has been surplused. There's not a lot of big warehouses left unfound for old guns sitting in cosmoline to be brought out and sold to the public. A lot of places where there are being found now they're being destroyed. There was a tremendous surplus opportunity in Iraq. There was so much there that could have been surplused. It was all destroyed. That's really, really sad. Um, they could have brought that stuff into our surplus market. The stuff that was full auto could have been uh, modified to become selective, you know, uh, semi-auto fire. Uh, but the gun grabbers wouldn't have it in the political situation. They kiboshed that. And uh, so all of that weaponry and some really cool Russian Cold War, War era stuff was there. Um, And in a lot of places where it's going to be released, Yugoslavia, Czechoslovakia, Finland, the stuff that's going to be released surplus has been released. So now we're waiting for, if you're waiting for the next wave, what you're waiting for are modern firearms. And when I say modern, I don't just mean modern ammunition, because obviously an 8mm Mauser, a 1903 Springfield, um, an M1 Garand, things like that, uh, fire modern ammunition as we think of it. Well, what I'm saying is, you're waiting for the United States to do away with, with the AR and, and um, you know bring out a new assault rifle for the troops and and surplus those. And I don't think those are ever going to be surplus, even with modification to uh, semi-auto fire. I think that politics will get in the way of that. You're waiting for um, you know the European troops, to, a lot of the you know Israelis and, and all them to start surplusing these things that are you know either you know burst fire or full auto fire. And I don't know if that stuff's ever going to get surplus if it does we're talking decades so the older stuff's drying up so this is a good time to start buying some of the stuff if you want to own it if you want to you know, pass it down for posterity now finding what's being surplus really is not that hard um, it's whatever is available And whatever's available cheap is probably what's come in in quantity at any one time. But a great site to check out is SOG. I'll put a link in today's show notes. That's Southern Ohio Gun. They're one of the biggest importers of surplus arms. And don't get excited when you go there and see a gun and it says add to cart checkout. If you do not have a FFL or a CNR license for the Cure and Relic listed weapons we'll talk about in a second, you can't buy from them. All right, so... Just because it looks like you can doesn't mean you can, but you can get good street price values, uh, see what, what dealers are paying for guns, and see what's currently available. And there's some really cool stuff there right now, so check that out. The next thing you can do is just go to Gun Broker, type in surplus on the search, and when you see like a 1,000 of something you know, come up, a 1,000 M91 Mosin-Nagats, you know that there's a tremendous amount of those in surplus right now. So that's another good way to find them. And that's the two best ways I know uh, there is a surplus. Surplus Firearms Magazine. I don't remember exactly what it's called. It might be called Military Arms or Surplus Firearms or something like that. I'll see if I can find it for you today. Uh, but they always you know, in every episode are talking about what's, what's coming out right now, what's become available, uh, what they're expecting to become available in the future. So if you really want to know, that might be a good resource to check out. I believe, thinking about it, it's called Surplus Arms is the name of the magazine. I'll check on that for you today. Last I wanted to tell about something that's really cool that anybody can get without anywhere near the hassle of getting a full federal firearms license. It is a federal firearms license of a type called a CNR or Curo and Relics license. What this allows you to do is purchase any CNR weapon directly without need to pay the transfer fees of an FFL dealer because you act as your own dealer, you keep your own book, you take care of your own forms. Now what is a, a Curo and Relic? A lot of firearms that are really cool are Kiro and Relics. You can look up a CNR list on Google. If you put in CNR list of firearms, you'll find, and a lot of handguns are CNRs as well. So as a collector, um, this is the way to go. I believe, and I could be wrong, so don't crucify me, folks, uh, that it's about $60 to get one, and that lasts for three years. So with buying one or two arms at a dealer price, uh, you're going to pay back the cost of your license, and you don't have to go through a lot of headache and transfers, and you can basically just find these things online, send a copy of your credentials, and they'll mail you a gun to the door like they used to do all the time in, you know, 19 early 1900s. Kids could buy a shotgun from Sears in 1940, and they just mail it to you. Well, they'll do that for you with CNR firearms, and uh, I think it's a great investment. It's one I just haven't done yet, and it's one of those ones I go, why the hell haven't I done this? Uh, so I'm going to make that my project of the week to get all my paperwork filled out and filed for. Or CNR uh, FFL. So that was something I wanted to bring to your attention in regard to that question. Next question is a really good question and um, two part question, easy to answer. And it's vinegar uh, is important. They're basically saying, you know, use it for pickling, use it for preserving, has all of these uh, applications, cleaning, uh, disinfecting. Should you make vinegar part of your storage for your preps, or is it easy to make? Well, it's not hard to make, um, but it does take time to make it and make it right, and it involves using a low-alcohol beer or wine, basically, is the way that most people would make it. So you're taking a commodity in beer or wine and converting it into vinegar, which, if you give me a choice between a big glass of wine and a big glass of vinegar, um, I would rather have the wine. So I really think you should make it part of your prep storage. and uh, But I don't think that making vinegar is a bad thing either. And You can make a lot of really cool vinegars, especially with different fruit infusions, like raspberry vinegar is really good for cooking and, and things like that. So I think vinegar making is a good skill to learn. I can't really go into exactly how you make vinegar other than to tell you it's basically souring a mildly alcoholic beverage. Is really what it is, and allowing it to ferment out into something different. And uh, that's really not very complicated to do. There is uh, some really good ways to make a large amount and keep it available uh, on an ongoing basis using two big barrels uh, to store your vinegar. Uh, There's some good articles online. I'll see if I can put some links to those to you for making vinegar. So I think it's a good skill. That said, uh, making good vinegar takes, takes some time. So I think it's definitely something you want to make part of your storage, especially since, you know, you can get gallons of it for, like, Next to nothing. It's dirt cheap. It's it's almost as cheap as bottled water, for Pete's sake. And uh, the storage containers that come in are nice and rugged, so you know you're not going to open up and, and you know break or rupture and end up you know just ruining your preps. So you have good strong storage containers. Probably won't want to put water in there after you get the vinegar out of it, uh, but it is a good storage container uh, that's available uh, once you've used it. Even if you go to making your own vinegar in a long term shit at the fan, you'd have the containers from the vinegar itself so definitely make at least a few gallons if not more of vinegar part of your preps and your storage it basically has an infinite life cycle uh, if kept sealed and kept in a cool dark place it can last almost forever Uh, in fact you know wine stores really good right well what's the one thing that happens to wine if it's not stored properly does it go bad no it turns into vinegar so that tells you what the storage capacity of vinegar is Uh, I really recommend you keep some apple cider vinegar around. It has great medicinal uses. It has great cooking uses. And uh, for making biltong, when you need a little bit of vinegar to mist on your meat, uh, there's nothing better to use than apple cider vinegar for that. Uh, That also says if you have apple trees, you have an endless source of making your own apple cider and apple cider vinegar as well as a byproduct. So that uh, may be something to think about as you're planning different trees and things like that and the value of an apple tree beyond the apple itself. Uh, with that let's go ahead and take another question. Great question from Dark Winter it says hey you talk about you know keeping fuel, extra fuel for your vehicle based on a distance range and he wants to have a distance range of at least 100 miles so that's about 5 gallons of fuel for his vehicle but he says if I'm towing a trailer in a major shit at the fan scenario with traffic jams and all obviously I'm not going to get my rated mileage or even my mileage that I you know, figure out for myself the hell with what the paperwork says so should I carry more than I need for that 100 miles if so how much uh, the answer is yes you're carrying it in your vehicle, day to day carry, which I recommend extra fuel for your vehicle. I know people worry about that, but again, properly stored, properly strapped down, it ain't much different than carrying the fuel, the 20 gallons that's under your butt right now. So that's why I don't hesitate to carry it. I'd rather have extra fuel and be able to get my butt out of South Dallas than end up walking around down there with an empty can trying to find gas at some odd hour of the night because I ended up there for a weird reason. And uh, possibly getting shot or mugged or worse. So day to day I would say go with about twenty percent. So five gallons go to six. Um I know they don't make a six-gallon gas can. You know you got to figure out what you want to do about that. But I would say if you want a hundred miles assurance for day-to-day carry, twenty percent should cover you in most situations. And remember, you can only carry so much extra. Now this guy has a truck. One of your options is to get one of those toolboxes that go in the back with a twenty or larger gallon fuel tank underneath it and have a reserve tank. Um, that would be a great option to allow you to carry more than you probably could in a very safe way. Um, Now, the other side of this, and this is why I brought this question on today, that thinking in mileage in the 100-mile range is just that for day-to-day use. In your home, in your garage, if you ever have to bug out for long distance, you need to think much longer than 100 miles. And if you're going to be towing a trailer or anything like that, You really need to think about, yes, having extra, and something I've never said and something I probably should have. My truck gets about 18 miles to the gallon put my boat, load it up, load the truck up, put the dogs in it, load it down for bug out, and we're dropping down to about 12. So I have to make my range estimates for my truck fully loaded based on 12 miles to the gallon. So that's how you figure that out. Now, there's always the nightmare scenario sitting in traffic with the car running like the evacuation for Hurricane Rita from New Orleans. Personally, if I got in that situation, I'd have windows open and the car off. I'm not going to sit there burning my precious fuel. Now, I know a lot of people, it was still hot out when that happened. They had old people in the car with them. They kept the car running so that they could run the air conditioner um, so that nobody would die. And, And that's sad, too. But that was a classic case of the government screwing up and waiting too long and everybody trying to get out the same way and people not having alternative contingency routes and undo panic and hysteria based on what had just happened with hurricane Katrina. So what's the lesson? Have your multiple routes of evacuation. Have your extra gasoline and if it looks like an evac is coming, jump a day early. If it doesn't happen and everything's going to be okay, you can go back. You'll spend an extra you'll spend a night at your bug out location or with a relative or in a hotel or camping. It's the worst thing that's going to happen. It'll be a mini vacation. It'll end up being a good readiness drill for you, or it'll save your life. So I thought that was a great question. It opens up some other things. Uh, Let's go ahead and take a couple more before I wrap up today here's a great question simple easy one what are my thoughts on stainless steel bottle water bottles you know like the ones that you can buy in all the sporting places now uh, you know they hold maybe a quarter or so and uh, they have a screw on cap and then the body is stainless steel guy says he likes them because uh, no BPAs no plastic or things like that um, I think they're great um, I think you can only carry so many of them and you can only carry so much water with them and you probably need in your reserve water to have other means, uh, hydration bladders. I know there's plastic there, but most of them are supposed to be BPA-free. You probably need larger water reserves, but for day hikes, for um, having a little extra water in the car, around the office, and things like that to deal with uh, acute emergencies, I think they're probably the best way to go that there is. Not only do they give you um, a safe way to carry water from a chemical standpoint, in an emergency situation. They can act as uh, cooking uh, utensils. You can use them basically to boil water, uh, where you can't boil a plastic bottle for Pete's sake. Uh, You actually can. um, There's a unique way to do that. I'm not going to talk about it today. But if you want to talk about dangers of plastic, doing that is a last-ditch effort only uh, because you're really releasing some nasties into your water in that situation. So you can cook soup in them. They're very durable and rigid. So I think they're great. Uh, your only limit is how many you can carry and how much water you can really carry that way. Uh, but again, day-to-day acute emergencies, day-to-day carry, uh, taking day hikes, things like that. I think they're one of the best tools out there uh, for taking some extra water along with you and giving yourself some added utility and being chemically safe. Let's take another two questions, and that will wrap up today. Next question. Guys, um, listen to my podcast on you know setting up a basic firearms battery, four guns, five actually being preferable that being a shotgun a handgun a center fire rifle a 22 rifle and a 22 handgun if you're gonna go with a five gun battery if you're gonna go with a four-gun battery leave off the 22 handgun and go with a center fire handgun so I really need four what if I only had the money and funding to get by with one what one gun would you recommend and why and um, we're not talking about you know a Springfield model or a Remington model he's saying out of those you know what type it it would be a shotgun. It would probably be a pump for reliability and ease of use, um, especially if you're going to like actually go out and use it for sporting purposes in addition to uh, using it for tactical self-defense and harvesting game, uh, because a pump is much better to learn with, in my opinion, than a semi-auto. When you're taking double shots and follow-up shots, you're more methodical and you're less likely to bang, 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 all three shells are gone and you've missed everything. Uh, so a pump for a variety of reasons. Uh, a four Affordability as well. Obviously, if you can only afford one, you have limited funds. Pumps are affordable. Maybe if you buy a pump instead of a semi-auto or an under and over, um, you'll be able to actually afford two. From a standpoint of flexibility, nothing beats the shotgun. You put double O in it. It's a man-killer inside the house without a doubt, without a question. Um, you use lower shot, You still have that effect um, with a, 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 a more... To me, number four buck is a hell of a deadly... Uh, Burst pattern out of a 12-gauge. Number three out of a 20-gauge. Very, very deadly. Um, Put slugs in it. It can be used for defense. It can be used for deer hunting. Good slugs. Uh, Maybe, you you know, you want some versatility, but you don't want the expense of an entire new gun. Good rifle-sided rifle barrel with shotgun slugs. Now you've got a gun that can shoot 100 to 150 yards with slugs. Switch back to your smoothbore. You've got all your uh, your tactical capabilities with slugs at up to 50 yards by using foster style slugs and the double O, but you need to harvest small game like squirrels and birds. You go to bird shot, and you have a perfect tool for that. Nothing has that flexibility. Gotta have one gun and one gun only. It's a shotgun. Gotta build a four gun battery and buying your first gun, it's a shotgun. Don't assume you need a 12 gauge. Go to a place that will allow you to rent guns and shoot them and get familiar with them and find the one that's most comfortable for you. That'll help you make that decision, but it's really hard to go wrong with either a 12- or a 20-gauge pump gun. Uh, Remington, Mossberg, Winchester, they're all good. They're all affordable. They're all a working man's gun, and in the end, a shotgun is a shotgun, and uh, what comes out at the end, at the terminal end, does the same killing no matter what the label is on the gun. Uh, So there's where I would go with one gun recommendation. So the last question of the day is not a question from a person. It's a question from a ton of you guys. And I'm going to put this in the show notes today, too, but I suggest you write this down. Because every time I talk about it, everybody wants the recipe again. This is the simplest recipe known to man. I had a ton of people ask me in the past two weeks, since I did my 20 things to do show, again, for my recipe for beer bread. So, I want to explain something first of all. Giving credit where credit is due. I don't know who to give credit to this recipe for because this is the recipe for basic beer bread. It's everybody's recipe for basic beer bread. If you ever want to find it, put in basic beer bread recipe. You'll find about a thousand websites with this basic recipe on it. Uh, The recipe is three cups of all-purpose flour, one tablespoon of sugar, one teaspoon of salt, one tablespoon of baking powder, and one bottle of beer. And the easy way to explain this is you put all of the dry ingredients in a bowl. You mix in a bottle of beer. You don't mix it up too much, though. You mix it up till everything is moist. And then you bake it for about an hour at 375 degrees. That's it and your oven will vary and you'll have to play with it and you might cut it and it might be a little bit wet inside and you might decide to cook it a little longer. It might be a little dry your first batch and you're out two bucks worth of ingredients and you'll decide to cook it a little bit less. Keep an eye on it. Do the toothpick thing when you go to take it out. Stick the toothpick in it. When it comes out clean it should be relatively dry in the center. Since it's thick you may want to get one of those bamboo skewers that you go all the way to the bottom with for your uh, toothpick test. Move it around a little bit. Kind of widen the hole and then pull it out really slowly to see if it's really dry in the center, a lot of times, even at an hour, a thicker bread at low elevation will be kind of damp in the center. It, it's still good, but some people don't like that. So it'll take you a while to ferret out your exact temperature and time of cooking. 375 for an hour is where to start. couple little tips. One, baking powder must be fresh. Fresh baking powder. I did not say baking soda. Do not use baking soda. It is the wrong thing. Baking powder. All right, fresh baking powder, your bread will come out a lot better, too. Get a flour sifter. You can just throw three cups of flour in there and do it. It will work. It won't be as good. I actually use a sifter, and I sift my flour twice, and my bread comes out a lot more biscuit-like because of that. Whole wheat is heavier flour. It will not come out that great if you make a 100% whole wheat version of this bread. Uh, It is a a much nicer uh, whole wheat experience for you, uh, whether you're making your own. Whole wheat uh, flour by grinding your own wheat Or using whole wheat flour from the store If you use about one cup of whole wheat To two cups of white flour I love whole wheat bread Beer bread is really not the way to go with it though Uh, Make a basic batch of it Before you start throwing things like herbs And cheese and stuff in there And then you guys like me that Like your Sam Adams and your Holly Hopped Ales And your IPAs Don't use that stuff for beer bread Dark beers are great. Anything with a really high hop flavor, though. The hop bitterness comes through the bread very strongly. And uh, if you make it with a light ale, you you hardly even notice any kind of a real beer character to it. But if you do it with anything highly hopped, the hopped flavor comes through. Even if you're a hop head like me and you love your bitter beers, um, you won't like it in bread. Trust me. It just doesn't come out right. Um, So, like, nice mild stouts do really well. I would not... Not use any draught ales like uh, like Guinness, the draught Guinness that has the widget in the can that comes out like it is from a tap. That's real, you know, that real creamy, fine uh, foam because it doesn't have enough carbonation. So if you want to use Guinness, use the, the the bottled Guinness that doesn't have that widget thing in it. And uh you, you make a really nice beer with uh, one-third wheat flour and Guinness to that. You can add a cup of cheese. You can do anything with it. But start with a basic white version first. Eat it with just a little bit of butter. Figure out your oven's cooking time. Make sure you've got kind of the perfect base to work off of first. It'll be easier. You'll love your first batch. And then when you something doesn't taste right, you'll know it's not the process you've gotten wrong, but an ingredient you've added that just doesn't work for you there or a brand of beer couple more things on the beer bread real quick. One make some this weekend or this week. I promise you, you'll love it. Uh, it'll bring some of that home-cooked character back to your home. It'll bring a family together over piping hot, fresh-made bread that you made from scratch. And it's, it's that easy. I just gave you how to do it. It's five minutes of prep time. It takes longer to sift the flour once or twice than it does to mix the ingredients. Stop, drop them in your, your bread pan and stick it in the oven. Do grease your bread pan. That'll get it out. Those of you who don't drink beer, go get a six-pack of something cheap like Miller Lite. Use it for making beer bread. You're not consuming alcohol. When you cook it for an hour, the alcohol is gone. You can use, like, seltzer water or whatever to do this, um, but the beer makes it taste better. I just put it to you that way. For those of you that think that like the yeast in the beer ferments and it doesn't, uh, almost every beer that you buy from the store today has been pasteurized, or in the case of things like Miller Lite cold filtered, there is no living yeast in most beers, unless you're getting a bottle conditioned ale like Chimay or something like that. There's no live yeast in beer. So it doesn't do anything from a yeast standpoint. So people say, well, why do I pour beer on something like, uh, uh, when I want a sour grain for catfish chum. And then the beer makes it sour. Well, the beer adds moisture, and it gets natural yeast from and bacteria from the air, and that's what does the souring. There's no living yeast in beer. What you're doing with beer bread is using the carbonated bubbles to... to do a fast rise and that's why instead of a very light bread um, like a typical kneaded bread with yeast in it, beer bread is more of a crumbly, heavier biscuit like really good bread so give that a try and uh, bring the family together around the table of some hot baked bread and that may not sound like a survival uh, topic but I'll tell you what, one, knowing how to use flour to make something good to eat is a survival topic and two, we're here, we're more than just about survival of the individual, we're really about survival of the family and the more times that you bring your family together around the table the more likely that family is to survive through the day and age that we live in this has been Jack Spearco with another edition of the Survival Podcast helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough or even if they don't you, you can scream and you can holler It really doesn't matter Cause it all gets spent